0: Right now, we are in Joshua. And a a brief recap, as we've been through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and now Joshua, we've been through what's called the Torah now, the law, the first five books of the Bible. It's also called the Pentateuch. Uh, But those first five books, um, we're we're through those, and that's Moses' account uh, from Genesis through Deuteronomy of, of creation, of everything that God's done, choosing this man Abraham. And so we see God chose Abraham out of all peoples of the earth to make a people that would become his people, his family, his prized possession, that would show his ways to the rest of the earth and that he would be able to bless all the world through this family. And so God chose Abraham. His family became the people of Israel. They became enslaved in Egypt. God rescued them out of slavery. And then he made an official covenant with them um, at Mount Sinai, and he led them through the wilderness despite their grumbling, their complaining, their doubting, their disobeying. For the glory of his name and for his sworn covenant, he remained faithful to them despite their infidelity to him. And we see this this principle, this attribute of God, his faithfulness seen throughout scripture. In fact, there's a time where he even says, where scripture even says that, that he is faithful even when we are faithless because he cannot deny himself, showing that he is faithfulness. That's part of one of his attributes is that he's faithful. And so then we see as they got to the edge of the promised land, they set up camp and Moses calls Israel one more time. One more time before he dies, he calls them to obey God, to love him, to serve him, to fear him, and to be faithful to him. And to not become like the other nations, and to not serve their gods, and to to not uh, live in sin, but to be different, to be holy. And we see him die on the edge of the promised land because of his own disobedience he wasn't allowed to. To go in. And so these people are called to faithfully represent God to all nations and all peoples of the earth. And that's where Deuteronomy closes off with the death of Moses, the appointing of Joshua. And it's the exact same place where we see Joshua open up in chapter one the death of Moses and the appointment of Joshua. Now, before we go digging deep into the book of Joshua, Um, It's important to consider its its format and then also some other things that are kind of challenging in Joshua. When we look at the format of Joshua, there's four main movements or four sections, if you will. The first movement being chapters 1 through 5 is where Joshua leads the people to enter into the land. Remember, they're outside the border of the land across the Jordan River. And Joshua being appointed as the new Moses leads the people into the land by crossing the the Jordan River the same way that Moses led them to cross the Red Sea. So this is one of the ways that God shows the people, Joshua is indeed the new Moses, my blessed leader, so to speak, that's going to take you into your promised land. The second movement, chapters 6 through 12, is where Joshua leads the people to take the land, to take what was promised to them over 750 years prior. The third movement chapters 13 through 22 is where Joshua divides the land and designates and gives it to the tribes as an inheritance. This tribe gets this section of land. This tribe gets this section of land. We see Joshua divides the land. And then finally in the fourth movement chapters 22 or I'm sorry 23 and 24, Joshua calls the people to serve God. In the land. Now, if you didn't notice, those four movements, those four sections all point back to the land. And that's important that we notice this, that we're mindful of this. As we get into Joshua, as new covenant people who are, who are in the New Testament, who are living thousands and thousands of years after this, it's easy for us to see Joshua as just one more little chapter in the story. And it is one more chapter in God's story of redemption. But if we're not careful, we'll totally breeze through the fact that this is the promise of God, the, the, the first stage of the primary promise of God being fulfilled in The promised land that was promised over 750 years earlier to Abraham, the people are finally going into it. And so we need to be aware this is a huge deal. Hundreds of years, generation after generation after generation, these people after Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to to Israel to the nations, hundreds of years they've been saying God's going to take us into that land he promised us. And for us today, we can draw encouragement from the same fact that God has promised for us a promised land as well. A, a kingdom where we will be with him for eternity. And like many people in those days who went their entire life looking forward to the promise, we also, unless the Lord comes back tomorrow, which he very well could, we live our entire lives looking forward To the promise of God that we too have a land, have an inheritance. And this is what Hebrews 11 is pointing towards when it says this person was faithful. Abraham was faithful. Moses was faithful. Joseph was faithful. Isaac, Jacob were faithful. Rahab, who we read about in Joshua, was faithful. Joshua was faithful. It goes through mentioning mentioning all these people as people who were faithful as they looked forward to the promise that was given. And it says to a city that was not of this world but to a heavenly city where we identify the same way with them going, we are looking forward not to our hope in this life. Yes, we have hope with us now, the presence of God with us, but our ultimate hope is in the next life with the Lord. And that ought to be a comfort and a salve and a a pillar of courage and strength to our soul when we look at the world today, right? When we see what's going on in the world, man, there's a struggle. There's a wrestle. And and I feel like America, we've got it pretty easy. It's really easy for us to forget our true home because we live in the most prosperous nation in the world. And we live more comfortable than the rest of the world. And it's easy for us to make make our home here. It's easy for us to become comfortable and love what we have here. And Scripture warns us over and over and over. First John the Apostle, he says, do not love this world nor the things of this world. That we look forward, placing our hope to what is yet to come. And as we look forward to that as well, it causes us to be effective here in this blink, this vapor, this finger snap of a life that we live. Looking forward to that day helps us be faithful today. None of that was in my notes, so I guess somebody needed it. And so we see that Joshua is about the land, meaning the fulfillment of God's promises. We see Joshua lead the people into the land. We see Joshua conquer the land. We see Joshua divide the land. And then we see Joshua call the people to be faithful and serve God in the land. And as we go into Joshua also comes some... Moral wrestling for Christians, because we also see God command Joshua to go in and destroy kingdoms and people groups, and we start going, wait, huh? But but God's good, right? Why would a good God send the Israelites in to wipe out an entire kingdom over here, an entire, in fact, all kingdoms in the entire land? Of Canaan. And we struggle with the fact that God tells Joshua to do this. And so there's a couple of things I want to really quickly point out. I spent too long on this in first service, so I'm going to try and be a little quicker this time. One, this isn't about ethnic cleansing or genocide. In fact, this has nothing to do with their ethnicity at all. And it has everything to do with their idolatry, their incredibly wicked living, In fact, we can learn about the Canaanites from some mentionings of them in the book of Leviticus in the law and also in Deuteronomy in the law. We can see where where Canaan is mentioned as a land where there was rampant sexual immorality, there was incredible wickedness, and even to the extent that God told Moses in Deuteronomy to tell the people, don't be like the people of the land that you're going into who offer their children as sacrifices to to their gods. They would burn their children alive as offered sacrifices to their gods who we know were not true gods. And so when God is commanding Joshua and the Israelites to go in and conquer these people and destroy them in battle, we must recognize that God is judging sin. The same way that if we look back in, in uh, Exodus, remember when God is telling Moses, go into uh, Egypt, you're gonna tell Pharaoh this, I'm gonna harden his heart, he's not gonna let the people go, and I have elevated him so that I might show my wonders. And he told Moses, you'll go in and I will judge Pharaoh and I will judge Egypt and I will judge their gods for their sin." And that's what we saw, those 10 plagues were actually judgment on their sin, on their rebellion, on their wickedness, on the oppression that they had been inflicting on God's people for over 400 years. And so the same way, this is the same scenario, the difference is that the agent of judgment in Exodus were the plagues, the agent of judgment now is battle and the people of God who are coming in to conquer the people of Canaan. And so, We struggle with that, but we also must recognize when we consider that scripture says the wages of sin is death, that God is so holy that we must understand what we perceive as the smallest sin. We like to rank them so that we can feel better about our sins that we struggle with, but what might be perceived as the smallest sin is judgeable by death. Before God, and so any person that is giving in it, given anything other than immediate death after sin is being given grace and mercy, common grace. The unbeliever who's breathing oxygen right now has been given common grace and mercy from God in that they're not killed. We all, every single one of us, deserve death before the holy God. And the Old Testament shows us that God is a lot holier than we think he is. We we struggle with this stuff. We go, really, God? Like, I mean, Adam and Eve, they only ate a fruit that you told them not to eat. But we have to recognize that was God's creation rebelling against him, disobeying him, and inviting sin into his pure and holy creation. And so the consequences that we look at and go, gosh, that looks like a little bit of an overreaction, God. What we, the funny thing is that we never hear people say, we always hear people say, how could a good God judge people so severely or so harshly? It's funny that we never hear, how could such a holy God forgive such wicked people? And it's because we're sinners that we default to the other question because we recognize God's holiness would judge our sin. Like when I read the Old Testament and I see God's reaction to sin, it makes my knees knock because I recognize I'm a sinner and God punished people for doing less less than what I've done. And so part of the purpose of the Old Testament is to teach us the fear of God. In fact, Proverbs goes on to tell us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And today in our world and in our society and in American Christianity, we say, well, yeah, but fear, the fear of God means that you just respect him. Eh, <laughs> I'm not so sure because people don't like the picture of the fear of God because they think it it diminishes the love of God and the goodness of God and the mercy of God. And we've got to learn how to stop pitting truths against each other when they can live in harmony. Listen, my father loves me and was a wonderful father raising me. I never, ever once doubted his love for me, but I feared him also. And it was the fear of my father's punishment that kept me from making a lot of stupid decisions. I wish my brothers had feared dad more because they made some more. But no, truth be told, like fear of getting in trouble, I thank God that I had fear of my dad. You know why? Because my heart wanted bad things. I wanted to do wicked things because it came up out of my sinful heart. And there were so many things that I can look back and go, man, I thank God that I don't regret that or that or that or that because I was thinking, if my dad finds out, he's going to kill me. Now, he wouldn't have literally killed me, but I did have this idea that, that the fear of God is contrary to the love of God is just not accurate. It's not true. And it's dangerous when people today diminish a true attribute of who God is or how we are to respond to him. Because we like another one better. It's more palatable. It's more friendly. Easter's coming up. And I hate that I hear this every year around Easter. There's people who say, oh, the cross is not about the wrath of God. It's about the love of God. It's about both. It's about both. And we err when we neglect one truth for the one that we want to elevate. Listen, the cross absolutely is the greatest display of love that has ever happened and ever will happen in history. You say, Pastor Stephen, well, people have died for other people before, so can you really say that the cross is the greatest display of love? Yes, because other people have never carried the sin of mankind for for anyone else. No one else was qualified because everyone else was a sinner. And so the cross at the same time, hand in hand, displays the wrath of God. You remember Jesus Christ, before he's going to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's literally sweating blood because he's so anxious about what he knows he's about to go through. He doesn't want to go through it in his flesh. He's in turmoil. He's grieved. He's praying. He's in the garden in his final test, and he prays to the Father. Father, if there's any other way we can do this, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Saying, don't make me drink this cup. What cup was he talking about? The cup of the wrath of God against sin. And Jesus on the cross, because of his love for us and his commitment to the glory of his Father, takes that cup of wrath that we deserve. And he drinks it, modeling the wrath of God and the love of God at the same time. So, we must be mindful that God hates sin more than we think he does. And he loves us more than we think he does. So when we read Joshua and we struggle with how could they just destroy an entire kingdom or city or people, we must recognize these are people who were incredibly wicked that deserved sin. It's no different than when God rightly judged the earth with the flood. Again, we think in our fallen minds that it's an overreaction. And God's going, actually, I'm being merciful because I picked a family to stay alive. Actually, I'm being merciful and not making Adam and Eve drop dead when I said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Thanatos, die that day. We don't see that God is being merciful in that there's a people group Jericho who are evil, wicked Canaanites. And there's an evil prostitute, a sinner named Rahab in the city who has the fear of God and then joins God's people and is grafted into the family of God. We just look at judgment and death and and oh my gosh. And we don't see the pervasive thread of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so it's important also that we understand as we read Joshua that we recognize, and also throughout the Old Testament, that God always welcomes the repentant to him. Because as the people of God, when when Joshua sends the two spies into Jericho to check it out and survey it, they stop at this prostitute's house. Hopefully you did your reading this last two weeks and you see them stop at Rahab's house. Uh, Many scholars say that it was also a hotel and inn and they they get to this place to survey the land and, and check it out and go back and give a report to Joshua, these two spies. And Rahab says to them, Our hearts, when we heard about what God did for your people parting the Red Sea, our hearts melted. Do you remember in Exodus all the times when God said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this? Do you remember those four words that he said why he was going to do all those things? So that you, well, five words. Dang it. So that you will know. You remember that? He said, I'm going to do this, Moses so that you will know that I'm the Lord. I'm going to do these things, Egypt, so that you will know that I am Lord over the earth. I'm going to do these things, Pharaoh, so that you will know. I'm going to do these things, you remember the time when it said, so that all the nations of the earth will know that he's the Lord. We fast forward 40 years to now, to Joshua, where we see that. Because this is 40 years after the Red Sea was parted, and these people are going into Canaan and they get to Jericho and there's a prostitute who lives in the wall there in her house in the wall. And she says, we heard about what God did, your God did, parting the Red Sea so that you walked through it as on dry ground and that, the, that Pharaoh's armies were conquered there. And it caused our hearts to melt within us with fear for that God so that all the nations of the earth will know this is 40 years later and hundreds of miles away. So we see the fulfillment of what God said as to why he was doing what he was doing so that you will know, so that you will know, so that you will know, so that all people will know that I am the Lord in the earth. And we see it one more time here in Joshua in chapter four when God's going to tell Moses, or I'm sorry, Joshua, to go in and conquer all these people. And he says, so that you will know that I have the strong hand in the land or that the Lord is mighty. In fact, I'm paraphrasing and butchering it. And in, in uh, chapter four, verse 24, he said, so that all the peoples of the earth will know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. So why didn't God just wipe out the people groups by himself like he did with, with Egypt, where he did these spectacular, miraculous things where the people of Israel didn't have to go into battle? Why didn't he do that? Well, if he had, there would have been a vacuum and other evil people would have come into the land. It would have been the same problem. Another reason though is because God wanted to show his presence with his people and his power over the nations so that you will know that the Lord is mighty in the earth. Let me say it one more time. So that all the peoples of the earth will know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Think about this. Do you remember the instructions? Probably we just read it. And if you didn't, it's a famous story of Jericho when God gives Joshua really peculiar instructions and says, Hey, You're going to go to this city, you're going to march around it every day for seven days. On the seventh day, you're going to be blowing trumpets. On the seventh day, you're going to march around it seven times, and then everyone's going to shout, and then you're going to blow your trumpets, and I'm going to give you the city. Why would God tell them to do that? So that it would be done in a way where there's no question that it's not the Israelites, not their might, not their strategy, not their power that gave them victory over Jericho or over all these countries or over all these people, that it was the hand of God. Do you remember in Deuteronomy when he tells them, don't think that when I give you this land, it was because of your power or your righteousness or your holiness or your goodness or your hand. I'm the one who's going to do it. And then we see in Joshua, that's what happens. That they go in at the obedience of God, following his instructions. And when they do, God moves in a way to give them victory. And I love something that you see over and over throughout this book. There's there's phrases that you see where, where God tells Joshua or tells the Israelites, for I have given them to you. I love how God talks to the future in the past tense to their enemies that they're looking at and they're looking at these double walls surrounding Jericho and they're going, oh man, how are we going to even strategically go in and fight? How are we going to get over this wall? How are we going to do this? God says, I have given them to you. Time after time after time, that's a phrase you see in Joshua where God tells the people, I have given, past tense, them to you. Go and obey and follow what I tell you to do. Well, Newsflash, I took just as long in second service as I did in first service trying to explain all that. The fact is, um, as we consider these things, finally we must keep in mind, oh man, there was more that I meant to say. Essentially, that's where I rabbit trailed from saying God always welcomes the repentant to him. Rahab uh, placed her faith in God out of fear for God, hearing about what God had done in the Red Sea and she says, our people have heard, and she decides, I'm going to align with Israel. And we see she, begins, she becomes a part of the people of God to the extent that in Hebrews chapter 11, she's mentioned among Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, Moses, all these faithful people of God who were obedient to God because of their faith. She's mentioned there. She's not even born an Israelite. She's a prostitute. And she's mentioned in the, the catalog of faithful people of God in the Old Testament. Not only that, we see in James chapter, tw- uh, James chapter 2, where the, the apostle James is making the case, hey, if you really have faith in God, if you really believe in God, it will be seen in the way that you live. Faith without works is dead. And then it goes on to say, like Rahab the prostitute who acted on her faith saying that her faith was revealed in the actions that she took, the things that she did. She's mentioned in James. Let's go one step further. Here's the real shocker, the real kicker, is that when you're reading the opening chapters of Matthew, the genealogy leading to Jesus, Rahab is mentioned in the genealogies. Not even born a Jew, a prostitute who's grafted into the family of God and is mentioned in the genealogies. Why? to show us that this isn't just solely about this one little people group. And I'm reminded of Romans chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul, talking to the church at Rome, said, A true Jew is not one whose circumcision is of the flesh, but one whose circumcision is of the heart. Not those who are born of the seed of Abraham, but those who are people of God, children of Abraham, because of their faith. Their faith in God, believing God's word, believing who he said he is and believing in what he's done and what he said he will do. So God always welcomes the repentant to him. Contrasted, that was in chapter six that we see Rahab saved because of her faithful actions. In chapter seven, we see a man named Achan, who is condemned and destroyed as an Israelite because of his faithless actions. He disobeyed God and kept some of the spoils for himself. So that just shows, again, it's not solely just because you were born of Abraham. Any Jews in the house? Any? Nope. All of us are Gentiles. We should be really thankful that this is a principle that's true. That it is for those who fear God, love God, and place their faith in God that we are brought into The family of God. And finally, we must keep in mind that these stories serve a unique moment in Israel's history where God was giving the land he promised to his covenant people and judging the extreme sin and corruption of the Canaanites. In fact, apart from Canaan, Israel was commanded to actually seek peace first with all peoples, all countries. In in Deuteronomy, they were given commands on their relationships with other nations, and they were commanded to seek peace with other countries and other nations. And so uh, that, again, affirms the judgment that God was bringing on the Canaanites. And so this is God protecting Israel and his promised land from being wiped out or overcome by the Canaanites and his wanting to blot out those sins and practices of such evil people. He didn't want those, those beliefs, those gods, those practices being brought into his people. So, all of that to say, we cannot use these passages to condone violence on others. It's not what they're here. Rather, God is showing us his justice on human evil and his covenant promises to Abraham and his descendants. And this is 750 years in the making. Now, I was in first service going to read Joshua 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, but because of time's sake, and I took so long going through all of that, and I took that time because I know this is something a lot of people struggle with and wrestle with. Um, but Joshua chapter 1, we see God tells Joshua, hey, Moses is dead, you're the new leader of the people. Be strong and courageous. I'm going to be with you like I was with Moses. Therefore, be strong and courageous. Again, only be strong and courageous. And he goes on to tell him how he's going to bless him, how he's going to lead him, give him good success as long as he keeps his commands. And then one more time, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. This is verse 9. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We see strength and courage comes from the presence of God in our lives. If we don't know that God is with us, we're spineless, we're fearful, we're worrisome, we're anxious, we're cowardly. All these things come from not recognizing God is with us. And guys, let me tell you, there's one way, one truth that we have won up on Joshua. And that Joshua had God with him, the new covenant believers in Jesus Christ have God in them. The Holy Spirit of God literally comes in and makes residence in our hearts, in our lives, where this is no longer something where we're trying to get into the presence of God or go in and out of the presence of God, that God's presence literally comes and indwells us and fills us. Which is why Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, echoes something that was said here in Joshua saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We recognize that God is with us at all times because he's in us. He's with us everywhere we go. So when the culture says, you evil, hateful bigots. So when our culture says, you Christians are X, Y, Z. And when they call us things and when they accuse us of things wrongly and falsely. And they misunderstand us and label us. It is the presence of God in our lives indwelling us that gives us the courage and the strength to stay strong and to consider the words of Jesus himself who said, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all sorts of evil things about you for my name's sake. That when people say things wrongly of us for our faith in Jesus Christ, we can go, thank you, Lord, I'm blessed to bear your name. So I want to flip really quickly to Joshua chapter 4 or I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 5, we see that God tells them, be strong and courageous, I'm with you. And then we see the spies go in and check out the land and Rahab hides them and saves them and then they go back and report to Joshua and they're getting ready to go into the land and conquer these, these nations, these peoples. And God makes sure before they do that they circumcise all the males who hadn't been circumcised and that they observe the Passover. And from that, we see that God's preparation for battle It's a lot less about sharpening your swords. It's a lot more about preparing your heart. God, God is not concerned with, are their weapons good enough? He's not concerned about, is their armor up to par? He's not concerned with, do you have a good strategy to approach the city? His concern is, are you right with me? For some reason in the wilderness, it seems they stopped circumcising their men. And so God says, you've got to circumcise your men and you're going to observe the Passover. And then you're going to go in and take the land. But one last thing happens before they go to Jericho. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 10, we'll see this. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes, and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land." And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. God didn't have to miraculously provide for them manna in the wilderness anymore because they had walked into the promised land. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no. No. Have you ever asked someone like, you know, two different questions and they respond with yes or no? In fact, that happened this morning. I was asking someone, did you just go on vacation or you're about to go on vacation? And they said, yes, actually. Um, The angel here is asked by Joshua, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he says, no. Let's see what he goes on to say. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped, and said to him, Why does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army, I'm sorry, what does the Lord say to my to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is one more account showing us that Joshua is indeed the appointed new Moses, so to speak. Because this is hearkening back to, of course, the burning bush, where Moses has his encounter with God through the angel. And some people have made the argument that this is the pre-incarnate Christ here. I disagree. Um, The reason being... Uh, there are multiple times in the Old Testament where it says God was speaking when we see that it was actually an angel. In fact, this happened at the burning bush where God spoke to Moses through the burning bush, but there's a verse that says, and the angel of the Lord spoke in that moment. And so I, I believe this is actually an angel that he's talking to. Um, and, and so Joshua says to him, again, you're seeing this dude standing there with a sword drawn. And he's like, are you with us? Or are you with them? And he says, no. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And I think what we're supposed to see here is this is not as much about is God for Israel. The question is, is Israel for God? And is Israel going to play their part in what God is doing in judging the Canaanites and in fulfilling his promises? He said, I'm not on either side. This is not so much Israel versus Canaan as much as it is God over Canaan. Are you on God's side and are you going to do things God's way so that I can bless these endeavors and I can get glory from what I do? What we see here is one more time that God is for God. God is for his glory, his renown, his name. This is one thing that we kind of tend to struggle with as well because we think, well, like God being for God and being all about his glory, doesn't that kind of make him narcissistic? Well, it would make him narcissistic and egotistical if it weren't true of the glory and truth of who he is. But he is the only one who actually deserves all glory. He's the only one who deserves all honor and all praise. And I'll show you, and before we wrap up today, I'm going to talk about how God being for God is actually for our good. See the conversation here shows us that the question is not whether God is on Israel's side, but is Israel on God's side? And that God being for God actually leads him to being or causes him, To be for us. We do see in Romans where it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? We will see in here in Joshua where he says, I I conquered these people. I did this for you. And so we must recognize with Jericho. And as we consider all these things, when we look at all these battles, we see Jericho where the people march around and shout. And God gives them the victory. So there's no Israelite, there's no person in Jericho, there's no person in Canaan who's going, man, those Israelites are good warriors, right? You're going, whoa, their God's legit, right? When you hear that they just marched around the city, shouted, and the walls fell down, your only response is, whoa, either they're really loud Or their God is God. And time after time throughout these battles, when they sin or disobey God, they're not given the victory. But when they do obey God and they do consult him before battle, we see God do incredible things where they're outnumbered and they conquer them anyways. We see them do incredible things where they're having battle and they're having victory. And Joshua's like, we're running out of daylight. God, could you make the sun stand still? Could you make it stop? And God's like, okay, cool. And no one, no one is going, man, those Israelites fight really well. Somehow they made the time feel like it stopped. No, they're going, their God must really be God. This is why God chose to do everything the way he did it. For his name, his renown, his glory. And as we saw in chapter four, verse 24, so that all peoples of the earth would know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. The Israelites don't get the glory. In fact, you recall, in the end of Deuteronomy, when God's giving the commands to Moses and he's reiterating them one more time to people, he says, do not think this is because of your might and your strength and your holiness and your righteousness. In fact, you're stubborn and rebellious. But for my name's sake, I will give you the land. I will give you victory. I will take you in. I will provide for you. I will forgive you. Let's flip really quickly as we close to Joshua chapter 24. I'm going to have to paraphrase because I'm ranting too much today. Hopefully you guys are doing this reading on your own time. If you haven't, I would invite you to do so because a lot of this will make a lot more sense to you if you have read it. But Joshua chapter 24, verses... Let's look at uh, verses 14 and 15. This is after Joshua has now come to uh, age, old age himself. He knows he's about to die, just like, just like uh, Moses did. And so he, like Moses, is given one more plea, one more call to the people of Israel, saying, one more time, guys, be faithful to God. Don't stray off to the right or to the left. Meditate on the Word of God day and night. Be faithful to Him. Obey Him. Don't serve the gods of the peoples around us. Let's serve our one true God. And from that, let's look at uh, chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Now there were therefore the fear of the Lord... Or Joshua saying, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you're going to serve, who you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the same decision remains for us today that we must choose who we will serve. Are we going to serve ourselves? Are we going to serve our flesh? The the desires of our sinful flesh. That is contrary and at war with us all the time against the spirit to make us do evil and sinful things. Or are we going to serve the Lord where we walk in the spirit and choose to resist the flesh, resist temptation, resist the enemy and live in the freedom of Christ? We have a choice to make. In a day where everyone's telling you, oh, no, 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 God's this and God's that, and here's the truth about God, maybe that's your truth, but this is my truth, and here's how the world is, and et cetera, et cetera, all these opinions and pressures that are coming against us, we have to choose who we will serve. Are we going to serve the Lord? or Are we going to serve the gods of the people around us? The gods of money? The gods of lust, the gods of perversion, the gods of pride, the gods of all the different temptations that are present in our world trying to ensnare us. And let me summarize to you today as we close. Man, I'm acting like my dad doing three closings. (laughs) He'd be proud. Today, final closing... The ways and the reasons that it's good for us that God is for God. Because God being for God, again, in his nature and who he is, being loving, kind, gracious, merciful, just, all that he is, comes out to being for our good, for us. For example, God gets glory for being merciful to us and not giving us the punishment that we deserve. Do you remember in the wilderness when the people of Israel had already been given commands and they're like, yeah, we're going to do it, God, every word. And it's like Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days and they're thinking, oh, Moses is dead. I'll tell you what, let's take off all of our jewelry. Let's melt it, make a calf and worship it, even though we just said we won't do that. And they do, and God tells Moses, hey, the people down on the ground are sinning against me. Moses goes and says, oh my goodness, what are you doing? You idiots and God tells Moses you know what I've had it up to here with these people I'm about ready to just wipe them out and start over with you Moses and Moses petitions and intercedes on behalf of the people to God on what basis he says God if you wipe them out then all the people of the earth are going to say that you weren't able to make your promise or keep your promise that you weren't able to bring them into the promised land for the glory of your name. Be merciful and forgive them. And it is the glory of God's name, God being for God, that caused him to be merciful towards his people. It is good for us that God is for God. God gets the glory by being gracious to us and giving us all the blessings we don't deserve. That is good for us, and it gives glory to God. God gets God gets glory for loving, valuing, and forgiving and reconciling rebellious sinners. He gets glory for that, and it's for our good. God gets glory for changing us into new creations, filling us with his spirit, changing our hearts to where we do love God and do want holiness and do live to please him, where we do live in a way that pleases God, unlike the Israelites. God gets glory from that, and it's good for us. God gets glory by answering our prayers in accordance with his will. He gets glory for saying yes, and it's good for us. God gets glory by leading us and guiding us. He's glorified by taking us through his perfect plan in this life and in this world. He gets glory from that, and it's for our good. God gets glory by giving us peace in the midst of turmoil. He's glorified when people see us at peace, when we should not have peace. We're able to say, man, God is so good. He's given me peace. That's all I can say. He gets glory from that and it's for our good. God gets glory by giving us joy in the midst of sorrow. Will people look at our lives and they go, how can they be so happy when XYZ is happening in their life? How do they have joy? I don't understand that. And we go, I've got Christ. Christ. He's so good, I can't help but have joy even in the midst of my suffering. I've got all I need in Jesus Christ. I can be content in him. Listen, that gives him glory, and it's for our good. God gets glory by being so soul-satisfying that we are able to be content with whatever we have and whatever we don't have because we have everything we need in Christ. How glorious does Jesus Christ look when we are able to go, Yeah. Good times, bad times, I've got all I need. I'm content in Jesus Christ. That makes him look glorious to where we're not saying, I would be happy if only, or I'd finally be happy if I could, or if I could have this, or if I could achieve that or accomplish this, or if I finally found my, sp- my special someone. When someone has Christ and we are so satisfied by him, that makes him look more glorious than anything else. And it's for our good. So if that means that the party isn't actually about me or us, how wonderful we are, how great we are, but it's actually about how wonderful, how kind, how gracious, how loving, how forgiving, how beautiful, how wondrous, how awesome God is. And I get to be a part of that. I get to be a beneficiary of that? Then let the glory belong to God. Let this not be about me, but about him. The glory is his anyways. It has always been his. It will always be his. He says, I will not share my glory with another. And when we align our lives with our purpose being to give glory to God, we reflect his goodness in our lives in a way that we don't until we recognize that. But as long as we see God as our little lackey, our little Santa Claus, our little genie who gives us what we want, we're not giving him glory. But when we recognize he is the all-satisfying, all-sufficient God of all creation who has come in to make relationship with us, who has pardoned our sin, who has forgiven us our rebellion and brought us back close to him, he's glorified. And we live in light of those truths. And we give him glory by saying no to sin. We give him glory by saying yes to righteousness. We give him glory by obeying his word, by meditating on it, by gathering to worship him, by serving him, by giving to his purposes. So, choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, as for us and our church family, By the grace of God, unto the glory of God, I say let's serve the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's serve the Lord. It's not going to get easier, guys. Contrary, it's going to get harder. Which is why we need to remember the truth of who God is, what God has said, and what God has spoken and done. So that we can faithfully serve the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the call that you have placed before us to choose you, to choose life, to choose your blessing. God, I ask today if there's anyone here who does not know you, who has not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that by your Holy Spirit, you would help them say, see today their need to repent of their sins because there is wrath stored up against the sin of mankind. But that sin and that wrath has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, I ask that you would open eyes today to see the need for a Savior, to come to saving faith and come to repentance, that you would change hearts, fill people with your Holy Spirit and make them new today. That by your grace, we could choose to serve you, follow you and serve you and give glory to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.